Hey everyone, thanks for joining me for another episode of the Badass Writers Podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Fox. Let's start off today's episode by doing a couple more pitch critiques, shall we? Our first one comes from Mark. Lost meets Twilight Zone meets 112263. Lucas Campbell's humble priorities in life are to make himself the best part of his family's farm in its celebrated history of service to the community he resides in during the post-World War II boom. When the townspeople suddenly begin to disappear, which ultimately begins to claim his treasured family, Lucas has no choice but to call on the one thing for help that he promised to never embrace, a tortured past. With the help of two reluctant leaders, his choice is simple. Determine why the town is claiming souls one by one by confronting demons better left behind, or lose his family and sanity forever. So first of all, I love the comps. The comps are really cool and intriguing. I immediately get a sense of something eerie and mysterious. The thing that I'm noticing here right away, though, is that it's very, very long, and there's no... Um, there's no hashtags at the end, which you do need in a pitch contest. So when I try to fit this into a tweet, it's 349 characters over the limit. So let's see if we can pare it down. For me, the most important details I'm getting here are the character's name, what he wants, the time frame, an intriguing, inciting incident, a hint at something dark from his past, conflict, what he must do, and stakes. So everything is there that makes up a good pitch, but we just need to whittle it down to something that fits inside 280 characters. And something that's missing for me is specific details about what kind of tortured past, what kind of demons are better left behind. So you can maybe think of a descriptor that will you know, just one word that will help with that. We also don't need Lucas's last name in the pitch because that part isn't important at this point in time. So let's start paring down these sentences and choosing strong word choices to kind of encapsulate their meaning. So this is what I've come up with. In post-World War II, celebrated farmer Lucas vowed to forget his tortured past, but when souls start vanishing one by one, he must embrace his dark ancestral roots to save them. If he doesn't face his demons, his family and his sanity are next. And then there's also room for hashtags at the bottom. So in this way, we're taking the most important information and laying it out with the tone and the tension, using lots of strong word choices like celebrated, vowed, tortured, souls, banishing, dark ancestral roots, demons, sanity, etc. Now, most of these are words that were already present in your original pitch, but I've condensed it to fit inside a tweet without compromising the understanding of the premise or the vibe that you're going for. So hopefully that helps. And next we have a pitch from Stephanie. Spanish Bridgerton plus Pirates. Admiral Jose Gaspar is duped into piracy when a jilted former lover accuses him of stealing the crown jewels. Josefa, the love of his life, must rescue him, but his soul may be lost to the darker inhibitions of piracy. And then there's hashtags at the bottom. So this is another example of great comps. I love the twist that you're putting on Bridgerton. Spanish and pirates mixed with this popular book and TV series is hot. 
You've used some great word choices here too. Duped, jilted, accuses, stealing, soul, darker inhibitions, piracy, etc. I think I would probably use frames him for stealing. It's a little bit stronger, so it kind of increases the tension a little bit. You can also shave off some character spaces by referring to Josepha as his fiance, And instead of saying what may have already happened, add to the tension by saying what could happen if she doesn't rescue him. So like, if X, then Y. So for example, Admiral Gaspar is duped into piracy when a jilted ex-lover frames him for treason. His fiance must rescue him, but if Gaspar can't prevent his darker inhibitions from claiming his soul first, he'll be lost to piracy forever. In this case, some different word choices help bring the character count down while still getting the point across that he was framed, and then he's duped into piracy, his fiancée wants to rescue him, but he's got darker inhibitions to deal with that might claim his soul first before she gets to him. Um, and also just a note for listeners, I know from previous information that Josepha is his fiance, so that's why I used that word here. So thank you, Mark and Stephanie, for sending in your pitches. I hope these critiques have been helpful to you both, and good luck in your pitch events. A hug is always the right size. Sometimes the smallest things take up the most room in your heart. Some people care too much. I think it's called love. If you haven't recognized any of these quotes yet, perhaps this one will do the trick. A day without a friend is like a pot without a single drop of honey left inside. And certainly this one. Oh, bother. You probably guessed it by now. These quotes are from none other than Winnie the Pooh, who was created by A.A. A. Milne, who died in 1956 on this day in literary history. Alexander Milne was born in London, England in 1882 and is the creator of the famous Winnie the Pooh stories, wherein his son, Christopher Robin Milne, gave life to the fictional character of Christopher Robin. During a trip to Winnipeg, Manitoba in Canada, Christopher fell in love with a bear in the zoo and thus the story and characters were born. Although Milne earned a BA in mathematics and was skilled in the game of cricket, his love of writing was evident from early on in life. In addition to professional editing, Milne wrote many essays, poems, plays, screenplays, novels, and of course, children's stories. First published as a story in the London Evening News on February 13, 1924 as Edward, which was Milne's bear's name for his actual teddy bear, the character's name was changed to Winnie after Winnipeg. Milne's Winnie the Pooh stories became so popular over the years that Christopher's actual stuffed animal versions of the characters are still visited by over three quarters of a million people every year at the New York Public Library. Milne was a writer who wanted to write what he wanted to write, not what his agent or others told him to write. He even penned murder mysteries, although his agent advised against it. When he decided to stop writing, there were a few reasons. One is that he never intended to write what others told him to write. And two is that his son was getting older, so the inspiration was no longer quite there. And the third reason that he disclosed was that he essentially was sorry the fame that came with his books was ever a part of Christopher's life. 
He never wanted his son to be exposed to it and didn't want him to end up wishing he were someone else. But apparently, it was too late by then. Christopher came to resent the fame he'd been exposed to and that his father exploited him. Between that resentment and his marriage to his first cousin, he ended up becoming estranged from his parents for decades, and his marriage caused a rift between his mother and her sister, the mother of his wife, his aunt. So complicated. After fighting in World War II, even though he was a pacifist, he fought against Hitler, whom he referred to as, quote, the Antichrist, the devil, and a crusader against God, end quote. He suffered from a stroke and brain damage in 1952, and his quality of life declined from that point onward until his death in 1956. A.A. A. Milne died just 13 days past his 74th birthday in his home in Sussex, and his ashes were scattered in a memorial garden in Brighton. A plaque rests at Ashdown Forest in East Sussex, which is a place he used to take his son as a child, and the plaque overlooks 500-acre wood, which inspired the setting for Winnie the Pooh as the Hundred Acre Wood. A famous quote by Milne, which became absolutely relevant in his case, quote, I suppose that every one of us hopes secretly for immortality, to leave, I mean, a name behind him, which will live forever in this world, whatever he may be doing himself in the next, end quote. Although he originally left his estate to four parties, through several passings over the years, the rights to Winnie the Pooh eventually fell into Walt Disney's hands in 1961, where it's been adapted into several different cartoons, movies, TV shows, and various merchandise. There has been so much money made on the characters that it even surpassed Mickey Mouse in 2005 after generating $6 billion in worldwide sales. Can you imagine that? You create a cast of characters, you create stories, and it eventually becomes worth $6 billion for one year. That's just one year. There have been movies made about Milne and his son, poems set to music by composers, even schools named after him. Other stories featuring the original cast of characters have been created, including one where Pooh Bear meets the Queen at Buckingham Palace. This particular story commemorated the Queen's 90th birthday and the 90th anniversary of the creation of the Bear character. So as I said, that quote that he said, very relevant. Something interesting that I found in my research is that China has banned Winnie the Pooh and the release of Christopher Robin, a film that was released in 2018, because they don't like the way that some people are using Winnie in several memes and photographs as an apparently derogatory comparison to mock their president, Xi Jinping. The concept of Winnie the Pooh has been challenged by religious groups, claiming it's, quote, an abomination in the sight of God, end quote, because animals can't talk and shouldn't be doing so in literature. This is something similar to Alice in Wonderland, which I discussed in a recent literary history segment. I don't know about you, but doesn't it sometimes seem like people will look for any reason to complain about everything? That wraps up today's literary history segment, and now on to today's guest.
Joining me today is Anastasia Zadaik, a writer, editor, and narrative nonfiction performer. She lives in San Diego, California, where she serves as director of operations for the San Diego Writers Festival and as a mentor and board member for the literary nonprofit So Say We All. When she isn't reading or writing, you will find her hiking, practicing yoga, playing tennis, swimming, or hanging out with her husband and their empty nest rescue dog, Charlie. Blurred Fates is her first novel. So welcome, Anastasia, and thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be here. First of all, congratulations on your debut, um, which Thanks. for our listeners, um, it was published this past August, and I highly recommend it if you enjoy psychological thrillers. I was very impressed by your writing. I absolutely loved it. Um, and I love it when I can pick up a book and just fall in love with the writing, uh, which I did in this case. And there were so many lines in Blurred Fates that gave me pause because they're universally impactful in one way or another. So for example, one of the passages that really struck me was this one. I think longingly of how much easier it would be if injuries to our souls healed as quickly and with such a predictable pattern of recovery. Instant red to dark purple, lightning before shading green to yellow to healed. Instead, emotional wounds are just like silent viruses lying hidden and dormant, waiting for a weak moment to burst open into red, gaping internal sores that no one can see. So I find that passages like that really speak to readers, and the book is absolutely full of them. And so my first question to you is, how many rounds of edits did this book go through to get it to the masterpiece that we see? Because um, typically manuscripts go through several rounds of editing, right, and revisions um, before they get out into the world. So the, do these types of lines just kind of come to you as you're drafting or is it in the revision process? Well, this particular one actually came from something that I wrote years ago. I was in a... a I wouldn't even call it read and critique. It was more like a prompt writing group with a couple of other writers. And we would each bring prompts and then we would read the prompt aloud. Everyone would write for, you know, eight, 10 minutes about it. And then we would share what we wrote. And so the whole idea was to just kind of be no editing, just creative wherever your thoughts go. And the prompt for this one was a, a bruise and I wrote about how bruises heal and how, you know, there's a predictable pattern to it. And when you see someone with a, a bruise on their shin or something, you can kind of get an idea of how long ago they hurt themselves and, and they're out there, you know, bruises are out there for everyone to see. But then when I was writing this book, I remembered writing that passage. And I remember at the time I was going through some things in my own life. And I was thinking about the fact that so often we have hurts to the inside that no one knows are there. And if people did, they might handle you a little bit differently. It's like when you see a bruise on your own body, you kind of realize that you have to be gentle around that. And I think when people are experiencing some type of internal injury, it would be nice if people knew that, um, you know, people would handle you with a little bit of great, more grace. Um, but in terms of the whole book and the editing process, this book did go through, I would say three to four substantial edits and countless other ones. Um, revisions, revisions, revisions. I make the mistake of naming my dot. I, I, I work in Microsoft and I save each revision and there are hundreds of versions of this book. So one of the struggles I'm always finding is when I go back, I'm like, when did I make that change? Oh gosh, I have to try to like date it so that I can find the old version if I decide to go back to something. This one took me, I would say the manuscript took me about nine months to write initially. 
And then I gave it to some beta readers, took their feedback, did a pretty sizable revision or, you know, pretty major revision at that point. And then I actually, then I contacted a developmental editor. It was a former big five publishing editor that sent me about six single spaced pages of notes. So that was the second big revision. Then I, I made the, I don't know if it was a mistake, but I gave the book to my older sister to read. And she really liked it, but there were some things about it that she wasn't sure about. And there's nothing, nothing rings in your ear, like the critique of someone that you love dearly. And so I actually put the book aside for a few years and I kind of thought that it might not ever see the light of day, that this might just be my first book and that a lot of people put their first book in a drawer and that's where it lives forever. And I went to a writer's conference in La Jolla, the La Jolla Writers Conference, which is unfortunately no longer in existence, but I was at a session on finding your voice. And the instructor, there's probably about 24, 30 people in the class. And the instructor started by talking about how some writers you can tell within the first few lines who wrote it, their voices are that distinct. And she used as an example, the poet, Mary Oliver, who's one of my favorites. And she read some poems and she said, right away, you can tell this is a Mary Oliver poem. And she asked at that point, if some people would be willing to read some of their work and we could talk about the beginning of their work and see if you could get into the voice quickly. And I was like the fourth person around the table and the first three people read and she gave them some critique and we moved on. And then I read the first three pages of what turned out to be Blurred Fates and there was dead silence in the room. And I thought, oh, thank God I put it in a drawer. Like they don't even know what to say. And then someone started clapping and then everyone started clapping. And then people started going like, when is it coming out? And I was like, oh, this lives in a drawer. It's never coming out. And at that point I thought, you know, it might be worth pulling it back out. So I did, it went through one more, I would say major revision at that point. And I, um, it was interesting because I think then I read it with fresh eyes. It had been sitting up aside and it also gave me a, a little bit more objectivity about the book, which made making change that final round of revisions. It came from a different place in my head. So I think that actually was helpful. And in the end, from the time I started writing the book to the time it was published was 10 years. That was not 10 years of total, like I wasn't revising that whole time because for at least three years, it just sat doing nothing. Um, in the meantime, I'd written my second book. So I wrote that during those three years. And I mean, wrote and revised it during those three years. So it was an interesting like step-by-step -step process for me. And I think in the end, it was, it was worth, you know, everything happens for a reason. And I think putting it aside was actually a really positive thing for the final book. Yeah. Oh, I agree. Everything happens for a reason. It's it's hard to see that when you're in the thick of things, but when you look back, you you realize that's you know that's the way it was supposed to go. I'm just curious about what you were saying about um, the things that your sister noticed. Did those things stay in the book, or did they get taken out? Interestingly enough, she did not. the The book had a different ending when she read it, and okay. that was one of the things that she was not that keen on. And I changed that in the final book. It had the twist that happens towards the end of the book, but it had a different ending. And I think it was less satisfying to her as a reader. 
And also, I think that she wanted there to be a little bit more depth to the resolution of the book. Mm -hmm. And I also, in the end, added, there was a, a deeper character arc for the husband that comes in at the end. And that involved, whenever you make a revision like that, it involves going back and putting things in putting threads in throughout the entire book. Cause you don't want to just suddenly have something happen in a revision that right. wasn't th a through line. So that took some time to do. Yeah. So in the end, she was, she liked the final book much better. Awesome. And so the plot deals with some pretty heavy topics. Um, there is some rape and sexual abuse um, and mental health is woven throughout the entire story. So how did you go about writing these topics in a sensitive way? So I would say, okay, first of all, one thing I should say up front, because this was confusing to some people, because the book is written in first person, a lot of people thought this book was my story, that it was somehow autobiographical, which I want to say right up front, this is not my story in, in any way. I had a very, very happy childhood, five brothers and four brothers and sisters, nothing like Kate's childhood. But having said that, many of the topics that are in the book are things that I've either dealt with myself or someone close to me has dealt with. And so I feel like I, some of them almost felt like personal experiences, even though they were not mine, for example, and I don't think this is giving anything away, you know, right from the beginning that Kate has a traumatic childhood. Kate's mother has a, a, an undiagnosed mental illness and she eventually dies of suicide, which you know pretty early on in the book. When my stepdaughter was 15, we learned that for several years, her mother's family had been hiding from us that she was dealing with an undiagnosed mental illness and addiction issues. And when it came to our attention, we we thought we were told that she had cancer, which she did not which was used, the family used that as an excuse for absences and unusual times in Amanda's, my, my stepdaughter's life. And when she came to live with us and we were suddenly faced with dealing with her childhood, we felt ill-equipped to deal with it. And as a stepmother, I felt particularly ill-equipped. And so I, like Kate, turned to books and I would go to Barnes and Noble and I would look for books on every single topic that we were dealing with that I'd never dealt with myself. We also all ended up in various forms of therapy, couples therapy, family therapy, individual therapy. And that was really helpful to me in terms of being able to step outside myself and see things from her perspective, see things from my husband's perspective, and to learn how to deal with something that was beyond my imagining, quite honestly. I think that there are so many things in life that the deepest hurt sometimes are the things that we are the least likely to talk about. Sometimes I think we bury them, sometimes we hide them intentionally. And that was one of the things that I wanted to get at. There was times when I would be speaking to my stepdaughter and there would clearly be something traumatic that had happened. It was triggered by something that was happening in our daily lives. And I didn't know what it was and she didn't want to talk about it. And sometimes those things actually became bigger things because we weren't talking about them. And I realized in through that whole process and through dealing with some things in my own life that how someone approaches 
when you reveal a trauma, how someone reacts, how they handle it with you is so important and so pivotal in how you're going to heal from it. So it was really important to me as a writer to give that safe space somehow to my character. When Kate goes in and out of therapy in the book, I wanted that to be a safe place for her. And she doesn't feel that it is at the beginning of the book, which causes some issues for her. And I also wanted to address how those things can actually end up trapping you. Like she, be, I, I always tell people, this is a book about someone who's trapped by the unspoken things in their life. She's faced with this critical thing at the beginning of the book. And she realizes that if she explains why she's reacting the way she is, she will have to reveal things that she's never told anyone. But if she doesn't talk about it, she's sort of losing herself on the inside. So she's either faces what she views as the potential loss of everything she's fought so hard for or losing herself, which is a choice that she doesn't feel, you know, is there's no good choice to be made. Before the book went to publication, I actually had it read by three therapists to make sure that the different therapy sessions and that the some of the experiences that she has um, were tr- like kind of true to life. I wanted to make sure that that was accurate. And for the most part, I think, you know, lots of research went into it. And so I feel comfortable with that. One of the surprising things, I think whenever you put something out into the world, you don't know how people are going to react. And some of the, the responses I've gotten from readers have been remarkably personal. People have written to me telling me things that they have never told anyone about their own lives. And I think that means that it's reaching them on a really deep level. And that was my hope in writing it. Yeah. Oh, I would say so for sure. That's, that's fantastic. And interesting that you, that you sent it to three therapists. Like that's, I think, I mean, everybody needs to send their work to someone or some, some other people, because you have, it's just, it's imperative to have fresh eyes on it. But, um, you know, because the therapist, is so you know the the role of a therapist is is very important in the book so that's really great that you sent it to therapists to make sure that it was as authentic as it should be right yeah and i mean therapy experiences obviously can be very very different there are so many yeah. different types of therapy out there um but i wanted it to be true to this kind of talk therapy that's that's right. the both of the therapists in the book there's a marital therapist and then there's an individual therapist and they they use that kind of it's not a cb that's not cognitive behavioral therapy it's sort of i guess uh, sort of freudian but not really it's but it's definitely talk therapy and so i went to three people who that's the type of therapy they do themselves and they all read it and and kind of gave me a few comments here and there but for the most part just made me feel comfortable with how it had been written yeah Oh, excellent. So you were just mentioning research as well. So what kinds of research did you do aside from that in terms of the mental health checks for the main character um, and the advice that she receives? So I read extensively. I read books about, um, I read a, a number of memoirs about people who had experienced, for example, bipolar disorder themselves, some that were the families of people who had bipolar disorder, I read a lot about the kind of things that happen in family structures when you have someone with a misdiagnosed or undiagnosed mental illness and how people develop coping mechanisms. And within the family, there can be different types of coping mechanisms. In Kate's 
in Kate's case, her father turns to alcohol. And as a result, he neglects her because he's he turns to something that doesn't allow him the space to be there for her or for the older brother. In many cases, you'll find that when there's a parent with a type of mental illness um, or mental health issues, that sometimes the the kids respond differently. So you can have one child that's terribly resilient and one that is not. And that's what happens in this case, even though Kate is clearly struggling through many sections of the book, she in the end has an inner strength and resilience that allows her to, to cope day to day with all of the things that are happening to her. And her brother has a different reaction to the things that happened to him. And I think that she also, um, Kate's character finds places of strength for herself as a, as a young girl, she turns to reading herself, which is sort of the way that I, that is sort of biographical for me, because whenever I, as I mentioned earlier, whenever I'm faced with something I don't understand, I like to read as much as possible about that topic and put myself into the minds of people who have, who dealt with it. So to see how different people have reacted. I also, I read a lot of sort of more clinical scientific things. I was a psych major in college. So that type of reading is a comfortable place for me. So I did do some reading in journals and things of that sort started listening to some podcasts about mental health issues, new therapies that are out there for different types of mental health uh, problems. And so I, I think that that part was almost separate from the writing of the book. If something came up, I, I might go to a source, but I kind of did the research and then allowed it to sort of percolate. I think that helps it to come out more naturally in the writing. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sort of, well, I'll do research ahead of time, but then I always find myself going and finding little tidbits here and there throughout things that come up as I'm writing. Now, you did mention the twist. Uh, I'd love to talk about the twist that happens toward the end. Not something that I saw coming, and it's not, I'm, I don't want to give away any, any spoilers or anything, but I'd love to know more about when that came into your mind, did you know ahead of time that that's how it was going to be? Or did you did you think about it later and stick it in later on in the process? You know, it's I'm not an outliner. There's a this this very broad characterization that people use as to two types of writers. They call them either plotters versus pantsers. Pantsers being, and you probably heard this before, Kathleen, but you know, the idea being that you sit that you write by the seat of your pants. And right. I am, I'm a kind of combination of both in the sense that I do do some research in ahead of time, knowing what topics might come up. Of course, as you mentioned, just, just, just now, sometimes something comes up and so you have to go like, oh, wait, I didn't see that coming. So now I have to learn a little bit about that make sure that I understand it. So there's some research that's happening throughout, but um, this was actually the result of some feedback. It was not in the original book. And some feedback that I got from some beta readers was about her reaction to this event that happens at the beginning of the book. And some people saw it as not realistic that she would react in the way that she did. And so I did, I kind of had to 
come up with a little bit more backstory about why that was such a huge thing for her. And as I was doing that, I started thinking about the whole idea of revelation and the things that we keep to ourselves and the things that we tell people. And at the very beginning of the book, you have her husband revealing something to her that because he thinks that something might happen as a result of this thing he did. And in the end, that's not what happens, but he's already revealed it. And so there's there's all of these things that end up happening in their marriage because of the fact that he told her something that he didn't necessarily need to tell her. And so throughout the book, I started thinking about that whole idea of revelations. So there was that Plus, I also am fascinated by rationalizations and the things that people will believe are okay because of a strong emotional thing in their life. So for example, love can often make people do things that they think are reasonable, (laughs) but everyone around them is kind of going, that is just not right what you did, but they think because love is such a strong emotion or hate is such a strong emotion that that whatever behavior you're driven to, you can rationalize it because of that. Um, I find the things that people rationalize because of love are unbelievable. <laughs> and yeah. so that was sort of where this twist came from was this idea of what could love drive you to do? So there you have it. I hope that I didn't give anything away in that. No, I don't think you did. <laughs> oh, I love it. And so you also mentioned that you you wrote a second book. So do you have something in the works right now? I do. I'm actually in the last stages of doing edits on my second book. It oh, is um, tentatively, obviously, titles change. And the title of Blurred Fates changed about six times. Yeah. It was called Kaleidoscope at one point. It was called Until We Are Lost at one point. That was the lo- that was the title that I stuck with for a really long time. But in the end, I, sorry, this is a little bit of an aside. That's okay. In the end, I decided to go with Blurred Fates because it comes from a poem that occurs towards the end of the book that was written mm-hmm. by Kate's mother. Okay. But it's basically also about the idea that one of the things that I really wanted to address in the book was this whole idea of nature and nurture and what makes us who we are. What are the things that cause us to become, you know, what are the experiences and how we handle those experiences? I think I mentioned earlier, like how different people can handle the same event in so many different ways, but also that it's not just about how you handle your experiences and how those change you. It's how the people around you are being how they're handling their own experiences, how they're handling shared experiences. So our fates are blurred by all kinds of things that we don't see coming. And so that's what the, that's where that title kind of came from. The next book is titled Capture the Light. One of the characters is a photographer, but okay. it's also handles a lot of mental health issues. And so it's in a in a nutshell, it's a book about two young people, a 18-year-old girl and a 23-year-old young man that meet in a psychiatric facility. They're both there because they've attempted to take their own lives and they meet and fall in love. And he is struggling with bipolar disorder and she is clinically depressed. And they are both, they both take a different 
have a different mentality towards um, treatment. And so part of it is addressing the, the difficulty that we have as a society in handling mental health treatment and the, the misunderstandings people have about that. And long story short, these two young people decide to leave on their own and they disappear. And their two mothers are told that authorities won't do anything to help because they're both adults. And so the two moms are trying to find them. And the, the two young people are traveling cross country on this sort of odyssey to fulfill the young man's dream of creating a recreating a famous Ansel Adams image of Half Dome. And so the two young people are traveling from New York to Yosemite and the two moms end up trying to find them based on just a few clues that they have. Yeah. So it's kind of parallel journeys yeah. and it's a story about not just what it's like to be dealing with mental health issues on your own, but the impact that it has on families and how a family member or a loved one's approach impacts the person who's struggling with the mental health issue themselves. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, so. if it's, if the, the writing and the themes and all of that is anything like this one, I know it'll be amazing as well. Thank you. Um, Thank you. And so you're in the last stages of that. So it, when it's, do you think that'll be out on shelves? It will be out. It's slated for publication on May 28th, 2024. Wonderful. Awesome. Yeah. That's one of the things that I think is, is really interesting that I learned in the first publishing the first book is just the length of time this all takes. Yeah. I think so many people think going into it, even as when I was first starting out writing and thinking about writing novels, I had no idea that from the time you finish to the time it shows up on someone's bookcase is usually about two years. And that's mm-hmm. for any type of like, whether you, I guess if you self-publish, it's not, but if you use any kind of publishing process um, that's not self-publishing, it takes a really long time. Yes, it does. You have to, I think writers learn a lot of patience, <laughs> learn yes. to have a lot of patience. Yep. Um, and so let's talk a little bit about that publishing process. Um, so you decided to go with She Writes Press. So that is a hybrid publisher who launches outstanding and award-winning uh, books written by women. So what went into that decision-making process and how has that experience been for you? Well, it's been a great experience. I, I have to say that I really have had a positive experience with She Writes. I've had a positive experience with the hybrid model. I like having a little bit more control over some of the things. But to be honest and fair, when I first um, I, I first heard Brooke Warner talk about She Writes several years ago, it was while Blurred Fates was in a drawer. So I did not think that I had anything to publish at that time. And when I decided to try to do something initially with the book, I did try to find an agent and go with traditional publishing. I was not a good query person. First of all, it took me a very long time to write a query letter, which is a whole different animal from writing a book. Yes. <laughs> and then I I know, don't know if it was from imposter syndrome or what the reasoning was. It's something I still struggle with. I was not good at it in the sense that I sent out, you're supposed to send out 80, 100 query letters. I would send out four. And then I would wait to hear from them. And fortunately or unfortunately, when I first sent out the first four, I got two full requests, 
which is very good. Yeah. But I waited then. So I waited for them to finish. I didn't send out to more people. I thought, well, I'm going to wait and see what happens with these two full requests. And in the end, it took a really long time for them to get back to me. And both of them said, love the writing. It's just not a right fit for me. So then I sent out like three more. And then I got a partial request. So I sent out the partial and then I waited. And then, you know, whatever it took, two weeks, she got back to me and said, yes, I'd like the whole thing. And then I waited. And so by the time I finally got through the first dozen, it had been two years. And at that point, I was like, this is just, I can't do this. And people kept saying, just send more out, send more out. And I, there was something stopping me. And I, to this day, maybe it was fear of actually putting it out there. But anyway, I didn't. And finally, it was became a timing thing. And I thought, you know, I I learned that I had some friends who went with traditional publishing. I learned that they had to do a lot of their own publicity and marketing, and they did not feel that they had a lot of control over the cover or the title or the way the book looked. And so I thought, I really want to have that. And She Writes allows you to have more input on all of those factors. And as a result, you do a lot more. Um, You're checking things. You're doing a lot of that, that work kind of making sure that the book looks the way you want it to look and that it's correct and everything falls to the author. But I actually enjoyed that part. And so I decided when it came time for the second book that this was the right approach for me. And I'm excited about working with them on my second book. Wonderful. Well, that's great. I I love I love when authors can tell us about their positive experiences. And I mean, there's all different kinds of ways to publish, right? And I think the most important part is you just have to make that educated decision. You have to know what it is that your goal is. How much control do you want? What what are you going to be responsible for doing? Is that something you want to do? And then, you know, go into it knowing what you're going to put in, what you're going to yeah. get out of it, right? And know what your different options are. Yeah, and I, I one of the things I love about She Writes is they have professional cover designers. Like, I'm not a cover designer. I wouldn't have had any idea where to start. And in fact... They ask you to put to create something called a cover memo, which is basically background information about the book, any images in your head that you see associated with the book. And with my first cover memo, none of the things that I thought would make a good cover ended up in my cover. And I love my cover. I but I never would have come up with it on my own. And you know, they're they're very professional. They have interior design. So they do the interior design. I'm not, I would not have any way of knowing how to do that either. So they do all of that. And you're involved in it in the sense that they keep you apprised of it. They give you options for the covers. And then you pick, like in my case, they gave me five very different options to start with. Once we picked one, then they tweak that one, but you're involved back and forth, back and forth, which I think with traditional publishing, they're like, here's your cover, here's your title. And you just don't have those, that, that same involvement. Right. And then can you talk a little bit about the marketing and the publicity process? So I was contacted by your publicist, Caitlin, who has also introduced me to to a number of authors for the podcast. Um, So how did you find her and what is entailed in that process? So I love Caitlin, first of all, she's going to help me with my second book. I'm so excited. She Writes Press actually had a, in their handbook for their authors, they give you a number of people that you can reach out to. And Caitlin was one of them. She came recommended by a friend who did not actually work with her, but had heard from other authors who worked with her, how wonderful she was. 
So I reached out to her. I interviewed a few other people. I reached out to Caitlin and she has a process that she calls book first. She, she wants, she represents the book and the author. So she has to love her book. And so I reached out to her, sent her the, the first part of the book. The next day she wrote to me and said, can you send me the rest of the book? So I did. And then we scheduled a phone call and we started chatting and she was asking me about things that I worried about and, you know, the whole imposter syndrome and all of that. And I said, at one point, I'm a perfectionist and it's really hard for me to, the idea of putting something out into the world that I might later think, oh, I should have put a comma there. Like that scares me. And she said, oh, well, that's because you went to Smith. Makes sense. And I said, how did you know I went to Smith? And she said, I do my research. And she said, and I also went to Smith. And it was one of those things where we just clicked from the beginning. It felt like I was talking to an old friend. And I think that's why, because we had this shared, we were not there at the same time. We were separated by about five, five years. She's younger than me. And, um, but we had this shared, this common thing in our past that I think just makes us click really well together. And the p- marketing and publicity is a whole nother ball of wax to deal with as a writer. I think a lot of people don't understand. There's certainly a creativity part to the marketing and the publicity, but it's a business and and you have to treat it as a business. And so I did not understand like things even as basic as the publicity happens before the book is published. My I worked with Caitlin for six months before the book came out. And that's when you're trying to basically let people know you, who you are and that you exist and that your book exists. There's, I think I read a statistic recently that 4 million books came out in 2021. Um, How do you let people know in that? I mean, that's a tsunami of books. How do you let people know that you exist, that your book exists? And I have a whole different appreciation now when I go into a Barnes and Noble, it's like, wow, all of these people went through this to get their book here. And you have to make yourself known to the world. And so the publicity is sort of getting your name out, writing articles, doing podcasts like this, and just letting people know, hey, I'm here and this is the book and this is what it's about. And if that interests you, you might want to look into it. The marketing is really about selling the book and that's a whole, you know, another learning process, but I have, I've actually, I enjoyed that. I have a lot of friends who don't enjoy the publicity marketing, but I, I do, I think it's, it's like a new, a new world, a big learning curve. When I first started, I had no social media to speak of, um, had to learn how to do Instagram and have a Facebook author page and all that kind of Twitter. I mean, I literally started from zero. So um, the second book will be easier because I have some ideas now about how it works. But um, it's just, it's a very different world than sitting in your room writing. You love it or you hate it. I I find that there are, there's not really a whole lot of in between. There's lots of people who absolutely don't like that part of it and lots of people who really enjoy it. It's, you know, it's the, the one thing that I think is interesting for me is there's this, push and pull between marketing your book and marketing yourself. I just met another writer for breakfast and we were talking about book clubs, for example. And I said, you know, I find it so interesting that a lot of times when I'm at a book club, a lot of the questions are about me. They're about why did I write it? What was my experience? What was, um, how did, 
my life impact the writing of the book? And that's, they're, they're curious about the author, which I did not, I, I, I have to admit, I've been in book clubs my whole life and we all do that. We all research the author. And one of the first things we talk about is how the author's life might have mm -hmm. found its way into the topics in the book. But I was surprised when it happened to me, which I shouldn't have yeah. been, but, it was. <laughs> but you're also marketing this thing. And I think that's what's helpful to me and allows me to enjoy it is that I'm not marketing myself. I'm marketing a book. Blurred Fates is not me. If somebody doesn't like Blurred Fates, I don't take it as personally as I thought I would mm -hmm. when I first started this whole thing. Yeah. Um, I understand that it's not for everybody. And I have to remind myself that in ev almost every book club meeting I've been to, there was probably a handful over 35 years where everyone liked the book. Mm -hmm. There's books that I absolutely loved that someone in my book club did not like yeah. for whatever reason. It's one piece of advice that someone gave me, which I would pass along to all authors is once you put your book out there, it's not your book anymore. It's right. the reader's book. Yeah. And they're going to read it based on where they are in their life. They're going to read it based on the book that they just read that they might be comparing it to. They might have something happen in their life halfway through the book. Their best friend gets diagnosed with breast cancer and suddenly they're not quite really enjoying the book anymore the way they were before. And it has nothing to do with your writing. It has nothing to do with the topic. It has to do with their life. I think we've all had that experience where you read a book and you think this was amazing and you go back and read it 10 years later and you're like, why did I think that? Not that the book isn't good anymore. It just isn't resonating for you because of where you are in your own life. Maybe the two years of actually putting it out there gave me that space to see it less personally. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a very personal experience for, for each and every person for a multitude of reasons. We are just about out of time. So my last question for you today, you've also published some shorter works in three anthologies. And I have to say, after reading your debut and, and reading a couple of those um, shorter works, you really have a knack for infusing that emotionality into your writing, which I think is fantastic. I felt all the feels. <laughs> So I'm curious um, to know who are some of your biggest influences in your in your writing style and what is your advice to other writers who are attempting to infuse that emotionality into their writing? This question was was really um, made me think a lot um, in terms of where the who those influences would be. And I read so many different types of books, but I would say the ones that really hit me where I feel all the feels are writers like Elizabeth Berg, Wally Lamb, um, Celeste Ng, Jody Picot, like people that write about everyday experiences and let you into, let you see in, in little moments, the, the everyday joys and the heartbreaks that we all experience. I, can pick up a book or look at my bookcase and remember specific scenes that just got to me. For example, my mother died of Alzheimer's disease. She was diagnosed at a fairly young in her six, early sixties. And there's a moment in one of Elizabeth Berg's books where the mom character of the main, the main character's mom walks outside wearing her nightgown. 
And it just crushed me. She did not write it to make you cry. She just wrote about something that happened to this character. And it, because of my experiences, of course, I just, I had to put the book down. I was so emotional. And I, I find that that's what really draws me to the writers that I love is when they, um, they allow you to watch these characters come to grips with the pain and loneliness and heartbreak, but also hope and love. And when you can just see it really simply put out in front of you. So those are the people that have influenced my writing style the most, I would say. Um, I try to do that in my own writing. And in terms of advice for other writers, I had a writing coach for one of my, I do a lot of narrative nonfiction performances, which is, it's um, a whole different thing where you, you write a story, you revise it over a period of weeks, two to three weeks. And then at the end of the month, you read it in a bar in front of 200 people, many of whom you do not know. Wow. And one of, it's just wild. And it's, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's taught me so much about writing, first of all, and, and about emotional, about connecting with an audience. And one of my earliest writing coaches said to me, if you can make people laugh or cry in 10 minutes, a 10 minute story, you've written a good story. If you can make people laugh and cry, you've written a great story. And if you can make people laugh and cry and laugh and cry, in 10 minutes, then you've written an amazing story. And that's what it's, it's, it's amazing. People, I think if you allow your own vulnerability, if you allow your own, your heart to come out in a story, it gives people permission to feel it themselves and to talk about it themselves. I once had someone chase me down after I left the bar to tell me that not the story that I read that night, but a story I'd read like three months earlier had changed her entire family's relationship with their grandmother who had Alzheimer's. Like it, you hear something like that and you think, oh my gosh, something that I did helped you. That's amazing. And she said, it just made me feel so much better and less lonely about this experience. And to me, that's the gift of a writer to a reader is writing something that helps them understand something about themselves or someone that they love or someone that they know um, that maybe they didn't they didn't understand before or to give empathy, self-empathy, empathy for others. That's to me what the best writing does. And so that's my, always my goal is to, to, to find that, you know, place of truth as I write. So my internet crapped out right at the end of our interview, of course, and I did reconnect with her, but I just wanted to say thank you again, Anastasia, for sitting down to chat with me. It was so great getting to know you and about your writing process and experiences with publishing, and of course, for the great advice that you had for our listeners. As always, thank you so much for listening. I love hearing that I'm being taken for walks with you or driving home from work with you or accompanying you while you're doing your laundry. So thank you for allowing me to spend some time with you in your busy day. If you're getting your manuscript ready for professional edits or an assessment, or if you're stuck when you're trying to craft your query letter or synopsis, be sure to head over to my editing site at foxeditorial.com, that's with two X's, as I offer many services for writers that might be of interest to you. 
Until next time, keep being badass.